0: I'm Adam. I'm an alcoholic. Hi, Adam. And uh, I appreciate the uh, opportunity tonight. I, uh, I reminded myself yesterday, I had a little thing come up on my phone saying, you're speaking, like, great, and I immediately forgot, and I did get a call from Dustin, thank God, today. And uh, so I'm grateful to be here. I, I had been thinking about this a little bit. Um, and I ran into uh, an old friend, who uh, Jay, who I, I've seen at meetings before, but I haven't seen him in a few months, and uh, and I said, well, do you come to this meeting? He says, no, I've never been to this meeting before, I haven't seen him in months, so I, I had a sponsor who used to say, is it, is it, God, is it odd or is it God? And uh, I, I like coincidences like that, so it's good to see you, Jay, and, and any, anywhere you are on your journey. Um, I'm just going to just for a little framework talk a tiny bit about what it was like and then I've I've been in AA uh since uh June of 1985 and uh I feel like uh I know I have a lot more experience with how not to do AA than I do with how to do AA and uh And I think someone heard my story and thought, oh, there's a guy who knows about roadblocks to recovery, you know. (laughs) Uh, It wasn't like the shining example of do AA this way. I really, and there were some real roadblocks for me, and most of them had to do with me. I I, I wrote down just five words, uh, honesty, open-mindedness, willingness, desperation, and ego. And uh, I'll probably talk about some combination of those tonight, but... Um, I, uh, I, I started drinking when I was uh, 13, and uh, right away I had the physical craving, like from, dr- from drink one, uh, if I had a little alcohol in me, I was off uh, from the beginning. And, but it was quite a few years before the mental obsession uh, also was added into the mix, and I would say that was only the last three years of my drinking. I was really scarcely a potential alcoholic until those last three years when I was just, I was it. I couldn't stay away from the first drink. And I was always the guy who once you, I had one drink in me, there was there was no stop in me. And I was a lightweight, uh, so I couldn't, I couldn't really hold my alcohol. So it would come up and then I'd keep drinking and I'd fall down. And I was a sloppy drunk, but a happy drunk. And I really liked how it made me feel, and I'd be sociable, and I was a smart guy, did well in school, but I was a little bit not with the cool kids, and it helped me be with those cool kids. And but what would happen very quickly after I got drunk is people would start backing away from me ever so slightly. Like I could just tell that I wasn't—I wasn't violent or anything, but they just—I was sloppy, and you know, and in my drunk mind. I still had the smile on on the outside, but inside I knew exactly what was going on. I knew these people were backing away from me and didn't really want to be with me, even though alcohol had given me the way to be with people. So it was this really shameful uh, thing. And so I kept trying to get that balance right of enough alcohol in me so that I could be with you and have a good time, but not so much that you're starting to back away and say, Adam, maybe you should go home now. And I never, you know, ever, th- <laughs> that moment would happen where i it was kind of like that first drink would go in and the second i'd be there and but as all of us who are kind of nodding you know then there was just, i just didn't you know i couldn't stop the pouring down the, of the alcohol and and uh i could never control and enjoy my drinking and um so i was uh 21 when i came in uh i mean my last year every day looked the same and uh I, uh, at the end of it, uh, last day of work, I was in Washington, D.C., working in a senator's office. Some guys took me out who I'd never gone out with before. And they bought me a pitcher, you know, and and we started drinking. And very quickly, we got to that point where, Adam, we're taking you home now. But this was my last day of work, you know. So this was party night. Finally, I could really let go. And uh, they took me home. I was quite drunk, and I remember thinking, well, what I'll do, I know these guys live in Georgetown, I'll just, I saw my roommate's car keys out, and I just took them, he took his car, and drove all over D.C., drunk that night, and eventually got a DWI, and, uh, and I, I'm leaving out lots of my story, I, like, for example, when I was a junior in high school, my dad went to his first rehab, and... Uh, I mean, I knew about alcoholism. I knew I wasn't going to be one. I knew I wasn't going to be an alcoholic like my dad. And so everything was about, well, one, I want to, I like being drunk. I want to control and enjoy my drinking. But I also, I'm never going to be an alcoholic, you know. And so all the time, this is playing, even though I'm an alcoholic. I've turned into one. I can't stay away from that first drink, no matter what my resolution is. So when I finally go to my first meeting, and I'm sitting there, and uh, – I'm finally desperate enough to go to an AA meeting. I knew about AA meetings, and I knew about at least a year before I came in that I couldn't, you know, I had a physical craving and a mental obsession. I knew that, uh, and I thought that would be enough for me not to be an alcoholic. But it took a few more consequences, and I had the gift of desperation, and it really is a gift. Uh, and, uh, and, I find, and I went to my first AA meeting, and I remember sitting there, and people were sharing, going, oh, I'm in the right place, finally. This is it. I mean, I knew right away I was in the right room. These were my people. They thought like I did. They acted like I did. They tried to drink the same way that I tried to drink, and it didn't work in the same ways. And I was like, I got a hero's welcome. I raised my hand. This is my first meeting. You know, like, oh, you know, he's the greatest guy in the room, you know. And and, uh, it felt really good. Like, this is where I belong. This is it. And three days later, I had a business trip. And I remember feeling a little concerned about it and even telling someone, you know, I'm going off. I've never been to Pittsburgh before. I've never done this job before, but I'm going to do it. And and I remember someone said, you'll be fine. And I, okay, I'll be fine. And I drank the whole week. And, uh, uh, you know, I was so terrified every day. Uh, that uh, on the last day, I remember it was this event. I was doing advance work for another kind of high-level politician at the time, and I I remember sitting on my hotel bed, frozen, like literally paralyzed. I can't move. And then the thought came: scotch. I'll have my scotch tonight. It's all going to be okay. And that's what enabled me to get up from that bed and go through my day, and knowing that I'd be able to blot uh, that horrible feeling of fear. Uh, and uh, that I had, so I, I then returned to uh, where I was in Connecticut, and uh, and I and that was June 5th, 1985, and I haven't had a drink since then. Um, and I would say in the first 10 years, what carried me through was uh, I had enough willingness to keep going to meetings, and I liked the camaraderie enough that I just kept going and I had a little bit of a competitive edge or or nature which was that both my father and my brother got sober that same year after me and that was enough for me to stay sober. I went to a lot of meetings. I asked people to be my sponsor even though I wouldn't say that I was actually in a sponsor-sponsor relationship but there were people who were in name my sponsor (laughs) I, I, I went to meetings. I knew people. I was happy to see people. They seemed happy to see me. No one was backing away from me. Um, I went to some meetings where they actually read this book and the 12 and 12. I mean, I, uh, I did service insofar as if someone elected me to be a trusted servant, I'd do it or pick up chairs. That kind of service. And that is good and important service. And But, uh, I would say that I, had a, I still had a pretty big honesty problem. And they talk about the essentials of recovery in the spiritual experience. And they say they're honesty, open-mindedness, and willingness. And uh, these, are, these are essential. You've got you to gotta have these if you're going to recover. And here was my honesty problem. One was, I don't think I believed I was a real alcoholic. Despite the data despite the fact that really I had, I had proven beyond a reasonable doubt that I couldn't stay away from the first drink. And once I took the first drink, I couldn't stop. I still had this feeling that I wasn't a real alcoholic, whatever that might be. And, uh, and why would that be? Well, I really am different from you in some way that I can't really define, <laughs> but I really am quite different from you. Uh, uh, because, well, for one, I had all this knowledge about my father being an alcoholic and going to Alateen and knowing all about that and, you know, blah, 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 blah. All of which, none of which helped get me sober. Uh, but I, you know, I had this knowledge. Uh, I went to an Ivy League university. So, oh, I'm really, like, I've got, I'm smart too. So that's really, uh, no, I had a sponsor at the time who used to say, there' been a lot of pe- there's, uh, there's never been anyone too stupid to get this program, but there's been a lot of people too smart and he told me this almost every day because I really thought <laughs> I thought I had it all figured out. like really, I, I'd been in A for three months and I went back to school, and I was running the show I, I, I didn't go to this college town and think, well, I've got to find a home group and I've got to get a sponsor, and I've got to do all these things. instead I said, well, I'm going to take the max course load. I'm going to be working out and get in shape. I'm going to do this. I'm going to do that, you know. And like way down there on the list was go to an AA meeting. And after a few days, I was literally suicidal with fear. I was so afraid that I, I could barely move. I, I thought, what am I doing? But I, again, I didn't think i got to get to an AA meeting, you know. Even though I'd gone to one every day for three months, I was running the show. So there, there, was, there was a little bit of an honesty issue with me with really saying, what is the true nature of my disease? I have a, I have a fatal and uh, incurable in chronic disease. But I held out this little thing that I'm slightly different from you, that I, you know, as a friend of mine says, I was a mild alcoholic, you know. <laughs> you know. And so the treatment also can be mild, or certainly I can, uh, I can set it up any way I want. Um so what happened well because my ego kind of what was, what made me desperate when I came in well I, I I got arrested I got thrown into a squad car I I spent a night and a day in jail I uh uh I had horrific hangovers uh you know I had uh right at the end that I mean that was it at at the end and I couldn't not drink and after I'm sober for a while I'm not in jail I'm not having hangovers. I am kind of got all my faculties together. And the desperation goes away. So what what is there to fill in the desperation? What desperation really is, is enforced humility. And so when the desperation went away, the ego, which was really my problem, which is really my ism, is back there full force. And it's running the show. And this is what I told myself. I'm the person taking me to AA meetings. I'm the person keeping me sober. This was what was operating in me. And, you know, I, I this guy who saved my life at about three months, I was at a meeting. I finally went to a meeting uh, You know, I, back at school, and uh, I, I think I shared in the meeting, but I don't really remember it. But I remember that Ron came up to me, an older guy, and he said, do you have a sponsor? And I said, no. And he says, I'm your sponsor. And I was kind of dumbfounded. I'm just... First of all, I was like, "Well, why did he come up to me?" It was a big meeting, and maybe I shared, maybe I said I was new to to where I was, and but uh, and this is a guy who I never in the in a million years would have picked. I didn't want what he had, and I didn't think I needed what he had, and, and uh, I I didn't like his style, you know. I mean, there was nothing about him, and yet this guy saved my life. This is this is the guy who really like taught me. Uh, when I was full of that fear and paralysis, how to get out of bed. And he was the guy who said, there's never been anyone t- too stupid to get this, but a lot of people too smart. And Adam, when are you going to take this program seriously? I'm like, what? What do you mean? I'm taking this seriously. I'm going to meetings. Don't you understand? This is what I'm doing in my life. When are you going to take this program seriously? This is job one, you know? And, and he just had to keep pounding through this uh, this thick skull. And what What I learned from Ron and what I learned from every sponsor I had after is no matter what happens, if I can keep showing up to meetings and not take the first drink, that's the bare minimum, and I'm going to get through kind of okay, and it's a beginning. It's just a beginning, and for me, for the first 10 years, that was my entire program. Don't drink and go to meetings for 10 years, that, and, and. I had relative periods of success. I had relative periods of entire insanity, but it was dry insanity. I wasn't drinking. I wasn't using drugs. Um, I was going it alone a lot. Uh, moved to New York City. Uh, I was there for four years. I did ask a guy to be my sponsor. I don't know that I ever called him. And you know, I was, I was, you know, the ism is I sponsor myself. I was sponsoring myself for four years. At the end of that that period and uh i I started dating a woman uh, who I chose who was clinically insane, and it turned very bad. <laughs> and I remember you know people were like, "Oh, Adam, she's insane or whatever." but then what was in my head is you picked her like you sought her out i mean there were there were options. you picked her, you like went up to her and then and then you fought for this relationship, knowing full well just how crazy it was and and uh I was insane. And I was an associate member of Alcoholics Anonymous. I was not, like, fully involved, but I was showing up, sounding good. You know, I'm smart, so I can read the book, and I can regurgitate it, and I know what passages go with what things. But the reality is uh, I missed a tiny little piece that's in this book so many times I'm embarrassed. But... uh, I'll, I'll just read the part that's right at the beginning of chapter four. Bill says this any number of ways, but he says it this way right here. So he has that great description of an alcoholic. If when you honestly want to, you find you cannot quit entirely, yes. Or if when drinking, you have little control over the amount you take, you're probably an alcoholic. That's nice. Now, this is what he says about that. <laughs> if that be the case you may be suffering from an illness which only a spiritual experience will conquer. Only. There's no other, no other way around this thing, he says. And they say this a lot of ways in here. And he keeps coming back to this. Now, if you were dying of a disease and you found out there was only one way to get over it, I think you'd get pretty curious about what that entailed, right? Right? And I read that a lot. I mean, it wasn't like I was never reading the big book. I had to read that sentence and sentences like it. But I never really got curious about what it would mean for me to have a spiritual experience. Uh, And to have that be, you know, I wasn't open to that. Why? Because my ego was at play. I thought I had this all at bay, you know. I mean, really, I I was so running the show. There is a... There's a great story in here about the guy named Fred, and Fred comes in. He's had his ass kicked by alcohol, and they lay it out in front of him. They say, here's the deal, Fred. Here's how this goes." going. He says, you guys have a great program going. You really do. I love the work you're doing. It's a wonderful organization, but it's not for me. And really, that was my stance. Even though I was still in the organization, I was still, you have a wonderful organization. It's not really for me. I like how I feel fellowship-wise or whatever. Uh, but I'm going to go, I'm going to go, good luck, you guys. That was great. And then, and then it says, we heard no more of Fred for a while, you know, (laughs) and I was this close to being, we heard no more from Fred for a while. Uh, I'll, I'll talk about that story. But then he comes back in and, you know, he's, he's, his ass is truly kicked this time. And he comes in and, um, uh, he, uh, so he's in, he's in the hospital and two members of Alcoholics Anonymous come in, and they grinned, and he didn't like that so much, they're kind of, you know, and he he says, uh, do you think you're an alcoholic, and are you really licked? And he said, I conceded both propositions, and they talked about it, and he said, then they outlined the spiritual uh, answer and program of action, which a hundred of them had followed successfully. Oh, there's a little clue in there right after spiritual answer it says program of action you know if i had had any curiosity about spiritual i might have been curious about this program of action but I wasn't that and he says though i had only been a nominal churchman their proposals were not intellectually hard to swallow i swallowed all your proposals intellectually i that didn't mean i was going to do them but i oh yeah that makes sense <laughs> but the program of action though entirely sensible was pretty drastic it meant I would have to throw several lifelong conceptions out the window. That was not easy. And here it is. Here's. This, this always gives me a little chills. But the moment I made up my mind to go through with the process, I had the curious feeling that my alcoholic condition was relieved. Ah, another clue here. You know, making up your mind to go through with the process. Well, how can you make up your mind to go through with it if you're running the show? Your mind isn't open to these other propos- you know. So, what had to happen for me? I got a little lucky. I uh, I reached a kind of emotional, mental, dry, drunk, uh, kind of second bottom, and I realized something had to change. Uh, I was living in New York. I was acting. I was waiting tables. Uh, I think the two go together in New York for a while. I. I I was really a fringe member of AA, uh, and I knew I was in trouble, and I I knew I just looked at my life and the choices I had made in the last two years, the crazy relationship. I'd lived back in my parents' house for six months, horrible idea. I'd I'd done a number of things, and I knew that the direction I was going, I, I was smart enough to know what path I was on. I was on a path I'd heard many times of people who eventually drank again. And it kind of hit me, like, if I don't do something, if I don't take some drastic action, I'm going to drink again. And for me and for alcoholics, to drink isn't necessarily to die that moment that I take the the drink, but it eventually means death. And it's not a good death. Or it means institutionalizing. And that's not so fun either. So I took a leap of faith. Uh, There were a few things involved in it. But I moved my leap... Was I moved to the Twin Cities, and there were other other factors involved in it. But it was a leap of faith. I knew one person here, and when I got out here, I had three months where I didn't need to work. I had been working a lot. I had put a little bit of money away, and I knew that I could do some other things. And the first thing I decided to do was I was going to go to uh, I was going to do a ninety and ninety. I was going to find a sponsor in my first week, and I was going to do a 4 step a searching and fearless force. I had done one at about seven months, and that was good as it goes for me at the time. I was checking the list, you know? I was a good member of AA. But I did my first searching and fearless moral inventory at 10 years of sobriety. And one of the things that I discovered when I did that, when I peeled away the layers of the onion, was that I had such a deep well of self-loathing that had never been dealt with, that had never been honestly confronted, That how could I make it 10 years and not know that I was really still hating myself so much, you know? I could put the, you know, I led, I was the alcoholic who led that double life. And I I put forth the face that I want you to see, but in my heart I know I don't deserve any response. You know, you might think, oh, that Adam, he's a great guy. You might even say, Adam, you're a really great guy. But in my heart I know I don't deserve that because it's all bullshit, you know? So if I'm leading that double life, it just keeps corroding and corroding and corroding, and I was for like 10 years. Now, uh, would I had rather that I was drinking and using drugs all that time? Well, no, you know, uh, but I I was not getting better. I was not recovering. So my roadblock early on to recovery was I lost that sense of desperation pretty quickly, and then my ego filled that just immediately filled that vacuum and my ego told my head told me all kinds of things my head will start running quite easily and and it will it's it'll it's where the alcoholism resides for me today it's why i still go to meetings every week it's why i sponsor guys it's why i do all that stuff because alcohol it's alcoholism not alcoholism and in my brain uh is, uh, is not on my side a lot of times when it comes to making good decisions around alcohol. When I realized what was at the core of all this, it gave me just a little bit of willingness and open-mindedness to try some things that I hadn't tried before. Among them were service. Service. I uh, shortly thereafter joined, uh, it was a few years, but I joined a group called uh, OMD, Outright Mental Defectives, Meets on Wednesday Nights, and they have like a dozen or 14 service commitments. They pass these books around to different uh, jails and ADAP and detox and uh, mental health units and all this stuff uh, And for a while, you know, you can just pass them along. But if you hang out there for a while, eventually you're like, all right, I better sign up for one of these things. And then off you go. And it's amazing. It's amazing. And doing that kind of service was the first time uh, in my recovery uh, that I had done this action that wasn't my best thinking, wasn't my best plan. And I didn't know exactly why I was doing it except someone else told me to do it. I had, made up, I had made the decision to go through with the process that Fred was talking about. Just All I had done was say, I'm going to try what other people are doing without knowing necessarily why I'm doing it. And when I did that, unexpected results happened. When I took a meeting up to Lionel Lakes or to Stillwater, somehow I became a better husband, and a better father. Why should that be, this, this principle of unrelated consequences? Well, it's because it's a spiritual action. And any time I get par- take part in the spiritual program of action, I become better in all of my life. It's not that I'm just buying a little insurance against a drink, which I am, but I get better in all aspects of my life. So it still doesn't make sense to me. I'm a smart guy. I can figure things out. It doesn't make sense to me why going to jail and holding a meeting there should make me better in every part of my life, but it does. I joined a, There's this... Um, how are we doing on time? There's, there's this uh, uh, great writing by Bill Wilson. He's, uh, he's, it's five years after he wrote The Twelve and Twelve. So he wrote The Twelve and Twelve when he was, uh, I think, about a dozen years sober, maybe a few more, and five years have passed, and he's writing in The Grapevine. He says, I, you know, I wrote, I wrote these books... And uh, AA as an organization has grown and flourished. I sponsor all these people. I'm doing service work all the time. Why am I feeling like I'm in spiritual kindergarten? And that's the, the words he used spiritual kindergarten. He's looking at, he goes down the list of 12 steps. And he's doing all this stuff. And he, thank you. And he realizes, that's it, huh? I got a lot of talking. Okay. We're going to have time to talk afterwards. I don't know how much more I have. But, um, and, he says, uh, "I was in spiritual kindergarten." And he looks at eleven, and he says, "I realize that I was not doing prayer and meditation." Well, again, for me, I'd heard people all along say, "You know, get on your knees in the morning, get on, you know, all that stuff." And it took me a long time to do that. I remember the first time I did it was right around uh, seven, eight months, maybe nine months of sobriety. I was thirsty, really thirsty, and I heard someone say, "I've never heard of anyone drink." who asked for help in the morning on their knees to stay away from a drink. I thought, I really don't want a drink. I'm going to try it. And I finally got on my knees. I'm a Catholic. You know, I got no problem being on my knees, right? I hadn't been on my knees in nine months, even though every meeting I go to pray, you know, ask for help, whatever. So it took me a long time because my ego was there. Well, now I'm looking at the 11th step. I've been in the program a long time. I've never, I've never meditated, never, you know? And I don't count opening my 24-hour day book and reading and sitting there... Uh-huh. Yeah. yeah. Interesting. Okay, now I'm off of my day. You know what I mean? That you know, for me I'd never tried it. And uh I had a little bit of open-mindedness to just giving it a shot. And another guy had come from Oregon and he and I started a group Thursday mornings at six thirty in the AM. And uh uh I haven't been going to it for a few years. I've got two little kids, and kind of that's where that went. But I started going to this meditation meeting. And again, why should sitting quietly in a room with a group of other people for 15 minutes have anything to do with my life? Okay, maybe it calms me down a little bit. You know, I'll take that. But it improved every aspect of my life. Again, this wasn't my best thinking. Uh, I had resisted this for over a decade in the program. Um, but here was this, you know, I had done that reading, spiritual kindergarten, try step 11, started getting curious about it. You know, for for us who have been given this gift, and I should just speak of myself, for I who was given this gift, uh, who saw what it did in my family, who's seen what it's done in other people's lives, who's seen plenty of people die from it. So I've been given a gift that not everyone gets. to gets. It's not get curious about, you know how can i improve my spiritual life here how can i make how can, there is no end of better right well there is when this is involved in running the deal you know and i can i can cut off better just like that so um these were the roadblocks to me to to really getting what do i want i want happy i want joyous and i want free in all areas of my life and i didn't have anything like that for over 10 years in this program. I had sobriety. I had some usefulness. I had uh, uh, constructive uh, relationships, as they were. But I didn't get that I had no idea of how to be in a true partnership with another human being. Until I do, no happy, joyous, and free. I didn't get that this prayer and meditation piece is important to my spiritual growth. Until I do, no happy, joyous, and free. You know, and... um, you know, I've seen milestones along the way. One was the decision to move out here. And with it right around that time, I I had been hoping from day 1 cuz I got sober in June, early June. My father went to his second rehab that August. And I thought, now my father and I can have the relationship that we always I've always wanted. You know, he can be my dad. You And it just didn't work that way. It was not good. And it continued to not be good. It continued to be a struggle. And then right around the time that I was about to move away from the East, I don't know exactly how it happened, but I suddenly realized, I was at a meeting and they were talking about acceptance as the answer. And I suddenly realized, I just have to accept that he already is the dad that he is going to be to me. He's not going to become this other thing. He is exactly right now my dad, and that's how he is, and to accept that. And for me, my brain had been trying to make him be something else, you know, and all I had was frustration and, and resentment about that. And as soon as I accepted him for who he was, a radical change happened to me. And this, uh, this will be the last thing I'll talk about. Um, I was plagued in my first 10 years with the inability to speak simple truth. I lied all the time. And part of it was I was people-pleasing. I was trying to tell you what I thought you wanted to hear from me. And I was all the time trying to figure out, okay, now the thing I'm going to say, you just told me this trip you took fishing. Well, I'm going to tell you about a trip I took fishing that never took place and a fish (laughs) I never caught. But you told me that story, and that's what you want to hear now. I'm going to please you that way. And now I'm going to go to work, and I'm in charge of all these people that are supposed to do this thing. Instead of telling them, please go do your job, I'm just going to sit there and get mad and do it for them, you know? Like this was how I operated in the world. I didn't want to say anything to you like, would you mind doing your job if it might piss you off? <laughs> now, this is not a good strategy in the world at large, you know, and but I thought it was. I'm just trying to make everyone like me, you know? I'm just And so it's so exhausting telling all these lies, getting them all out there and trying to remember who you told what. And I'd get caught from time to time and be incredibly shameful. And, but it, I, it didn't encourage me to change my behavior. But there was something about accepting my dad for who he was. I was able to really accept me for who I am. And in the seven-step prayer, we now offer ourselves, all of us, the good and bad. And what I could never come into like, real terms with was some of the unsavory stuff that was in there, some of the stuff that I didn't like about myself. But that's who I am. That's all of me. And what AA, I think, is about, yeah, yeah, we do the four-step inventory. We cut out some of that stuff that's real obvious. But I don't get to cut parts of me off. I am still the person, really, I'm that person who came in 24 years ago. But it's now like I've learned how to be in relationship with you. I've learned how to accept all of me and bring all of me in an honest way. And I couldn't do that before. I was just lying as fast as I can and moving on to the next deal. And when you're lying to everyone, you don't have one real relationship in the world. And I, I didn't. I didn't have one real relationship in the whole world. I thought I did because I'd walk in. Hey, Adam, how are you doing? Hi, how are you doing? Right? And uh, so when I broke through all that, went for that, that little piece followed immediately by doing a searching and fearless moral inventory, getting involved in service, Sponsoring a lot of guys, actually uh, and now I really will finish with this thing. Um, here's how it worked for me. you know I for the first twelve years in sobriety, i was I had about twenty relationships with women, different women, twenty different women, Among them were women who I thought, this is the one, this is the one that I, I love this woman, Gee, this is it. And then it would always go south, you know. And I was kind of a little bit addicted to falling in love and that feeling. That was a great feeling, but there was something else going on there, too. I had no idea how to be in partnership with you. I could just, like, idolize you, or if I really liked it if you didn't like me all the way, because then I could work on it. I loved that whole deal, and so I'd try to make you, if I can just convince this person that I'm it, you know, I love that, and if you really liked me a lot, I pretty much couldn't get away from you fast enough, you know, so that what you can see it wasn't a good a good way of doing it, but the first relationship that really that I started learning how to be in partnership with someone was the sponsor that I chose at about ten years of sobriety. I learned how to be honest with him and how to ask him things, how to set boundaries i that was good. And one of the things that he took very seriously, and I do when I sponsor guys, is I introduced him to other people in the program and other guys. And then I start learning how to be in relationship with other guys in the program. We still haven't left the rooms of AA, right? And I, now, and I, how do how can I be a true friend? How can I show up? How can I do what I say? How can I be honest in that relationship? Then I learned how to be a friend to other women in the program, just a friend, not even a part, just a friend. You know, it was like that. It just took that kind of learning along the way. And if you had said to me, Adam, it's probably going to take 10 or 12 years for you to figure out how to be in relationship with someone. I always said, no, no way because I'm ready now. I want it now. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, and I did because you took away all my other drugs. You know, well, I, I, you got to give me that one, right? <laughs> and uh, But you know, I want what I wanted is what I have now. I wanted to be in a true partnership with a woman. I wanted to have kids. I, you know, I wanted to do all that stuff, but I couldn't figure out how to do it here. And I had to, and I learned it through the program of action, of of fellowship combined with spiritual action, uh, here. So, that's been my journey. I didn't do it right all the way, but you know, so I heard this. I I won't remember exactly what she said, but, you know, the journey. Is what we're about right now. This is all we got, and uh, I wouldn't, I wouldn't do any of it differently, because we will come to see how our experience can benefit others. No matter how far down the path we've gone, we will see. And every time I sponsor a guy, you know, who's having sex problems, who's having money problems, who's having whatever problems, I have been there, and I've been there in sobriety. You know. <laughs> That is really valuable. That is really valuable. Way more than the problems I had when I was drunk. You know, that's, you know, that's water under the bridge. So, uh, that's all I got. I am, I'm a grateful alcoholic. I'm really grateful for the opportunity to speak tonight. And with that, I'll pass. Thanks.